Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Play is the Thing, where two theater nerds talk about what theater's greatest playwright said about theater in theater's most famous play. And we're going to discuss it with some of theater's coolest people. I'm Alisheva. I'm Sarit, and we are diving into Hamlet to explore the dialogue between actor, director, character, and theater itself. We want to unpack the meta-theatrical elements that hold the mirror up to nature, both within the play and outside it, and try to get a better understanding of what they tell us about theater and about ourselves. Today, we are super delighted to have on the show three guests who all work together on a production called Hamlet, Viking Prince of Denmark. We have the director, Kelly Johnston, the producer, Malini Singh McDonald, and the Hamlet himself, Ian McDonald. We're going to introduce each of them, starting with Kelly Johnston. After completing a BA in theater from UNC Chapel Hill and an MFA uh, in directing at the California Institute of the Arts, uh, now works as a freelance director nationally and internationally based out of New York City. Before New York City, he co-founded two critically acclaimed theater companies, Serious Theater in Los Angeles and the Arizona Classical Theater slash Shakespeare Festival in Prescott, Arizona. He is a proud member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, a co-founder of Rain or Shine Productions, a founder of Directors Discuss, an associate artist of the Arizona Shakespeare Festival, and a resident director for McGee's Theater. He is also inordinately fond of pie. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Malini Singh McDonald is a native New Yorker who received her BA in theater arts and English literature from Baruch College and her MFA in directing from the Actor Studio Drama School. She is founder of both Black Henna Productions and Theater Beyond Broadway. She has collaborated with the Anthropologists, Broadway Artists Connection, and Mind the Art Entertainment. Select directing theater credits include The Wiz, Torch Song Trilogy, Look Back in Anger, The Colored Museum, and The Jewish Wife. Malini is on the board of the League of Professional Theater Women, a member of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society and Statera Arts. Malini was a producer on the Broadway revival of Godspell, as well as the, on the producing team of Chasing Rainbows at Paper Mill. She received the Women of Distinction Award for her contribution to media, arts, and culture from the city of New York. Hi, Malini. How are you? Hello. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And last but not least, we have Ian McDonald. A native New Yorker, Ian has spent the better part of the past three decades as an actor on both stage and film. Notable performances include Hamlet in Hamlet, Viking Prince of Denmark, Dogberry in Much Ado About Nothing, the sinister William Reach in Down the Road, the Baker in Into the Woods, and Ed Reese in the off-Broadway revival of Torch Song Trilogy. As well as acting in countless plays, he has appeared on television on Law & Order, The Special Victims Unit, Believe, and The Good Wife. Ian's talents are not limited to acting, as he is also a theatrical electrician, carpenter, set and lighting designer, and technical director at UB Merton's Theater and for community, regional, and off-Broadway theaters. He also teaches courses on stagecraft at University of Bridgeport. Thanks so much for coming, Ian. Hi, how's it going? Great, thank God. Okay, let's jump right in. Um, can you guys all just tell us a little bit about your production how it worked, what was the concept behind it, where and how you staged it, because I know that that was a, not a simple answer. All right, um, I, yeah, just I all the details. kick it off. I mean, the idea for Hamlet 
really was just me turning to Ian about eight months before we actually launched, or it might be longer, maybe a year, and said, you know, let's just go back to our roots because Ian and I have, you know, we've been creating theater for the last 23 years together. And I would say probably in the last five years, we had uh, started working on, separately on separate projects and, and that was really exciting. And we, I, I said, let's just go back to our roots. Remember when we just do theater, we'll do Shakespeare out in the park. It was so, so much fun. There was, the, the stakes weren't that high. We were doing it for the sake of doing theater. We were doing it for the community, which was great. It was free. Like it was just like the best type of work we were doing as we were building our careers. And he said to me, yeah, I would really love to do that too. I'm like, what about Hamlet? I said, uh, I said to him, I said, listen, honey, I'm going to say it. I said, we're not getting any younger. What do you think? And he said. <laughs> it, I mean, also, if you remember, um, a good friend of ours, her theater company ran parallel with ours, and they also did Shakespeare in New York City parks. Mm -hmm. And she was supposed to be in their version of Hamlet a couple of years prior, and she became ill and wasn't able to do it. Oh, yeah. And um, when Malini broached the, the idea to me, she said, what do you think about doing Hamlet? And we could try and bring that person into the, the show as well so they can actually get to do the part that they wanted to do in the first place. And I said, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. I'd, I'd love to do that. You're right. We're not getting any younger. And if, if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said, no, I'm not ready to play Hamlet. But I think I'm at the point um, emotionally to be able to tackle this role now. So yeah, let's, let's light this candle and let's call Mel and see if she wants to do it too. So we reached out to her and she said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be a part of it. Who do you have on board? And because we needed to find a director. And Malini and I pretty much both at the same time said, Cal, we should get Especially Cal. Especially with and, the theme uh, that Ian had. Ian had a very clear vision for this Hamlet. And when he shared it, and Cal will talk more about it, when I went to Cal, you remember Cal, we were at Bryant Park. Yeah, I said, during lunch, I said, buddy, here's the pitch. And yeah. Cal all over it but he was my guy oh i, I said yeah I, yeah <laughs> yeah i we i remember actually and then we went to dinner the, the four of us the two of you and me and and my wife miss kent and um uh basically you know it was like yeah we're gonna do hamlet and ian would be playing hamlet and mel would be playing uh ophelia although i did not know her they vouched for her and i was like yeah i'm i'm in are you kidding i love it and so ian explained that um the uh you know the title it's it's a dead giveaway viking prince of norway right that's that's denmark denmark norway one of those one of those countries one of those scandinavian there, countries somewhere um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah i direct i don't write it so i don't remember this um no uh, it, when he said that it was the viking prince of denmark i, I was in because um, 
back in Arizona when I was with the Shakespeare Festival, I produced, mm-hmm. I did not direct um, the Hamlet when we did it. And the original concept by the director there was a full-on Viking Hamlet, which for uh, for complicated and not that interesting reasons we could not realize at the time, we had to we had to steer it in a different direction. And so, mm-hmm. to me, this was the opportunity to like actually dive into that that world. Um, and one of the reasons I really liked it is because years and years and years ago, when I was an undergrad uh, or grad school, one of those. Um, they were talking about Hamlet, uh, specifically in class, and, and one of the things that the teacher pointed out uh, at the time was that the Elizabethan's conceptualization of the residents of, of Denmark, you know, that's the Vikings, and the Vikings had sacked England any number of times, and so mm-hmm. their view of them were very violent, bloodthirsty, merciless, not barely human sort of beings from this frozen wasteland. And so the idea that Hamlet is this thoughtful, uh, very introspective character in that world, when I heard that all those years ago, I was, it, it sort of opened a different world for me on Hamlet. Like, there, there's so much going on in it. Um, so I was, I was, of course, excited to jump in and play with these guys. Um, and, and especially, I'm also very fond of Shakespeare in the Park. So that, that was just, yes. you know, that's the cherry on top. Yeah. Um, I don't think we mentioned this yet, but Serena and I both actually saw a recording um, of the play from June 2019 that you sent, and we were really blown away. Oh. And now I'm a little starstruck, not going to lie. We came on, <laughs> up, you know, a little bit, but thank you. Um, but I did see also in a promo vi- uh, video, Kelly, this is um, just to you, but everyone can add on. Um, you mentioned that uh, like something like if someone's never been to Shakespeare before, this play Hamlet of your, like your Hamlet is a good one to start with. It's like more fun, lighter um, than other productions of Hamlet. So I was just curious, like what, what made it like that lighter, almost more fun, more accessible um, version? There's, there's a couple, honestly, there's a couple of things about it. Number one, I think that when it's in when it's in the park, and not when there's a remove from the audience, but it is in the same on the same level with the audience, so that actors can walk out among the audience, and in theory, audience can yes, walk they did. through among the actors. There is a as they as they frequently do. Um, yeah. there is a there's immediately sort of a a relaxation. It's not as formal as say when it's indoors on a stage, whether it's proscenium or but then secondly, um, I actually, on top of the, the Viking element, and, and we did lean into that hard, so all the fight choreography, of course, was was along the lines of, uh, you know... Looked a lot of fun. Yeah, 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 Ian can talk a lot more to that than I can. I just, I just watched him do it. But, um, but, but there's, that you don't think of the fights as being fun in Hamlet, as silly as that sounds, like, you know, like there's the fencing match at the end, and that's very that that's always very serious because there's there's death involved, not to make light. Whereas this, it it, it wasn't a fencing match. It's a it's it's more of a, a Viking brawl, um, and, and I I think brawls are just kind of fun. Um, maybe not to be in, but they're a lot of fun to watch. Um, but the other thing uh, that that was special to our production was, um, I, I think of Hamlet as a, as as a detective story. Um, he is seeking to discover the truth. 
It is not about, while there's certainly very, very deep topics that are touched on within the play, it isn't like he is setting out to go on a journey of self-discovery. He just is trying to find out the truth. And so in my head, it's always sort of a film noir kind of thing. If I ever did Hamlet again, that is exactly, I would, I would literally do it as a film noir. But it, it's it, in that light, when it's a detective story, there is permission for funny lines to be funny. Um, as opposed to it's, it's Hamlet, and therefore we must treat it sacredly. So yeah. that, that would be my answer. I mean, I don't know, Ian or Melanie, how y'all felt about it. but I mean, it's also, if you look at Hamlet, the text, do I have it? Uh, is it right here? Yeah. Okay. So I have a tiny uh, little. <laughs> I know. I know where you got that. <laughs> the, I love those. The made she handmade really them. Yeah, she handmade us all little tiny texts. Oh, she's but so all really the listeners who have no idea what we're talking about. Oh, yes. Ian Sorry, just yeah. pulled out a, how big is it? <laughs> oh, it's like two and a half by two and a half inches. <laughs> it's uh, really it's really like cute. a foot thick. But, so. Yeah, it's monstrous. It's like an inch and a half thick. Um, yeah. But Hamlet itself is five plus hours long if you do the uncut text. And that's at pace, that's keeping up with acting pace. It's it can be up in the five hours long range. Yeah. Um, we cut it down to what was it, an hour forty? Yeah. I, it, so it, any Shakespeare just going past two so hours needs to earn it, as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> we had to cut out three hours worth of text from Hamlet, <laughs> and that's a, a considerable amount. There are characters that disappeared, never yeah. showed up. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, where are you at? I yep. tried to fight for R RNG uh, hard, really? and the, the boy said no. <laughs> there, there's no need for it. What, what went down? down? How did this all... Well, yeah, tell us. <laughs> well, okay, so... With Shakespeare, I, I would argue there are some plays that you simply can't cut. Like, for instance, Tempest. Try and cut anything in that play. And, you know, it's built in such a way that you cut one one subplot and the whole thing collapses. Yeah, I, right? I, I, um, I directed a kid's version of The Tempest a couple of years ago, and it was it was so hard to make sure that everything was... Yeah, like, it's just... Every it's little all detail tied has in. to it's, be squished in there. Right, it's, it's very neatly stitched together. But a lot of his other work, you know, you can cut whole swaths out and not miss a thing. And so we had gotten the cutting between the three of us uh, on Hamlet. We had cut everything that we could, that we felt we could. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were still in it. And it was running, my guess I think was, my memory is it was going to run about 245. Mm -hmm. and, and then I just, I started looking at it and went, oh, you know, if you cut Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, if you actually remove that, subplot it's not it is crucial in the sense of it it helps it helps show that hamlet is not only isolated it, it, he is he cannot even trust his friends like it really helps frame how alone he is but beyond that they don't they don't really drive any part of the plot at all they're just a, they're just a foil yeah. for horatio they're, the they're just the exactly. opposite. they're horatio's opposite so we mm -hmm. cut them out entirely and we gave some of what their business was to other characters, you know, where we couldn't. And lo and behold, that got us 50 minutes right yep. there. And Molini, of oh, course, and, and rightfully so, was like, I, I w was not a 
a fan. I don't want to represent, like Melina, you can represent it, but I remember you were very incensed at first that we had I to the boy. I love both characters. Uh, Ian and I did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead very early on in our relationship. So, uh, you know, it all means a little something personal, but you, as a producer, asking to asking your artists to collaborate especially trusting kelly the way that i do he i knew he knew what he was talking about i mean i had to fight for it right but he and rightfully so i mean my other suggestions would have cut all this a little bit (laughs) all of them oh my gosh so if that's your alternative, so then yeah, goodbye, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. One of the other things too that that helped with the the accessibility of it, I think, is in the editing um, because we had to cut so much. All and because of when it was set, because we set it in its original time period of late nine hundreds A.D. Scandinavia, so. Christianity wouldn't have been a thing there. And Hamlet is an extra, the original text of Hamlet is an extraordinarily religious heavy play. That is. Because one of the main crux arguments of why doesn't Hamlet just smoke this fool Claudius is he can't because Claudius has asked for forgiveness from God. And if he does kill him before he gets all the evidence, then he's committing a sin against God. And we figured these Vikings wouldn't know anything about that. And Kel rightfully cut all of the Christianity out of Hamlet, which makes it a very different piece. Then it's no longer a morality tale. And it becomes a lot more accessible to modern audiences that don't spend at least two hours every working day of the week in prayer at church like the Elizabethans would have. So like the Elizabethan peasantry at least would have. So, you know, cutting that makes it more accessible to today's audience. Yeah, it's really in- and interesting. And it, it made it neater. It tied it up. It's interesting that you bring that up because we are actually both Orthodox Jews. Um, and the class that we're taking that inspired this project um, is called Shakespeare Bible and Political Thought. And that... Of course. That... Oh, nice question of of the theology in hamlet was something that we spent a really really long time discussing so yeah in the absence of that uh, you're right the story totally transforms into something I mean, very different shakespeare was a very ingenious writer in the sense of you know when you think about the kind of and i mean even in america uh, there's a certain amount of censorship that goes into writing a play, right? There's, you know, and the way I think of it is there's things you can't talk about, right? Or there's things that are not appropriate or what have you. And for all that that may exist now, Shakespeare was up against like a much, much harder yardstick. Like, you know, it wasn't just that they might pull your play. They could they could throw you in the tower yeah. if you wrote the wrong thing. And, Cut your head off. you know, by the time he's writing Hamlet, he's an old hand at having to keep the the queen and the aristocracy pleased while also keeping the the common you know the commoners the groundlings happy and bringing them into the theater so he can make a little coin and so what is interesting is in, in Hamlet 
it isn't just that there are religious tropes, but technically, at the time, England is uh, is Church of a, C of E or, or Anglican, they would call it. But Catholicism had just left last Tuesday. Like there were plenty of closet Catholics, and in fact, you know, the gunpowder plot happened just after Elizabeth passed away under under James the First. So, like, there's this tension in the country between Catholicism and, and Protestantism. And what is interesting to me is a lot of the uh, the religious themes that are in Hamlet are not Protestant, they're Catholic. Um, and, right, and, the, and that, the whole that, purgatory thing, Hamlet's father says Catholic. that he's... Yeah, yeah the purgatory, yeah. the ghost who is, for the record, my favorite character. No offense, Ian, <laughs> like you were a great Hamlet. <laughs> I did me some ghost, I really did. Yeah. Um, the ghost's appearance and saying that that I am stuck in purgatory till the sins of of my day mortal days are burnt and purged away, it is a straight out of Catholicism belief system. Protestantism does not practice that at all. So I find that interesting, but I only find it interesting in the sense of it tells us a lot about what was kind of going on in the day. It, to Ian's mm-hmm. point, it has nothing to actually do necessarily with the story. But why the reason I think it's ingenious is Shakespeare didn't create Hamlet. Somebody exactly. else wrote Hamlet. This was his version. Um, right. and, yeah, and so what he does is he takes an earlier version where there wouldn't have been any of this religious whatever, and he lays it in. So what we see is a, a playwright of the time that is finding a way to discuss or bring before his audience a topic that is you know not allowed. You're not supposed to talk about it. And he gets to show it up in very specific ways and, and create questions. And I think that's great for 15, you know, 97. But it's in like 2000, years ago. did we do this, 2019? Yeah. I, yeah, I feel, like, I feel like I've been in a decade for the last yeah, year. Yeah, um, this year, yeah. Only a year. We'll almost a over, <laughs> almost over. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so close. Almost there. Um, but for today, and I hadn't considered it till both Ian and Malini pointed it out to me that like we don't need it. That, that commentary doesn't isn't as engaging as it would have been. And I actually found that very freeing in the cutting because there were there were a lot of things we could let go. Though. Right. So Shakespeare putting yeah. it in was making it more accessible to his audiences, and so us That's, taking it out yeah. and and returning yeah. it to its original I, is yeah. same thing for us. And it, it's also interesting that him putting that in there in the first place, because these are barbarians that he's talking about. These are people from the North, they're, they're Danes, who even at the time, even let's say we're talking 1300s Denmark, not, or, or 1600s Denmark, not 1000 Denmark, mm-hmm. which would have been pure barbarians. They're the ones who sacked England multiple times. Repeatedly. And, and gave the Scandinavians the bad name that they had in the eyes of the English, um, they would still be considered foreigners. So to make them Catholic would be okay. And be uh, he'd be allowed to do that. Yeah. They're not British, so that's fine. These weird people from the mountains, they can worship whatever weird beliefs they want. And we can tell a story about it. And that's how he could get away with that. Which is, and but again, like Kel said, we didn't need to tell that part of the story because we're trying to tell a ghost story that turns into a murder mystery. And 
Let's let's boil this down to really its essence. So I'd like to just is. jump yeah. in With here because I <laughs> I don't act anymore, but Gertrude is on my list. And I just opted for this production to stay as producer. I really wanted Ian and I to have the space um, as a married couple, as well as running this company and to just remove myself. I didn't want to add extra, extra work, nor did I actually have a desire for it. But the way that Kelly, by Kelly and Ian coming together and saying, let's strip away the Catholicism, actually raised the stakes and brought a, a couple of different layers to Gertrude. Now, granted, we had a fantastic, fantastic actress in Anasini who took the role and yeah. ran with oh, it yeah. in a way that honestly, yeah. I would not have been able to create it. And I mean, I'm older, older than her, but her work and the way she just unpeeled the the onion of of gertrude was beautiful and and i really think told told the story of her more so than how it's usually written and it usually gertrude just wife's husband dies wife marries hus you know husband's brother and that's what she's supposed to do because that's what the bible says and bob you know passive but here it's you know what is really her uh super objective in this journey with a with a son who is enraged at her and as you saw in the production the two ian and, and anasini together that those scenes were Yeah, they were hard to watch. Yeah, like yeah, it, good to watch, but hard. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's exactly what you yeah. want with those scenes. Yeah. 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 I mean, there are some fundamental questions with, you know, when when you're when you're I think when you're going to do Hamlet that you have to you have to decide out of the gate. There's some, like a lot of things, and I'm a big believer in this in rehearsal. A lot of things that don't need to be decided up front, you find them in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. That's why every show is different. But there are some things that you have to decide. And I remember one of the first things that Ian and I talked about, uh, at, I should say Ian uh, Anasini and I talked about, was the whole, the whole, is there this attraction between Gertrude and Hamlet? My answer has always been no. But I, I know that there's plenty of people that feel the other way. And it's important to me, at least, that, the, that me and the two actors playing those roles are all on the same page. Because what you don't want is somebody playing it one way and somebody playing it, you know, the other. And then mm -hmm. the other thing that was a, a conversation with Anasini was, is Gertrude, uh, is Gertrude In on the aware of yeah. what has happened? Is she, is she, is, is she, yeah. and, and, uh, complicity. yeah, is, is there, is she complicit? And, and I'm actually honestly okay either way. I, I don't personally have strong feelings. I think it's far more interesting if she doesn't. And I think that that's what the text indicates, but I think that you can also play it that she is, and that yields some very interesting stuff as well. And mm -hmm. so those were the two things that I can think of. I'm sure these guys will remind me of other things. Like, oh, there was that too. But those two up front was, okay, what is the relationship between Hamlet and Gertrude? Does Gertrude know that, that Claudius killed Hamlet Sr.? And those two, I think, have to be established on day one so that we're working the same way. Now, the caveat I put on it was if, we, if we're working on it and find we want to flip it, that's cool, too. 
right? Like if we're working on it and it's like this isn't working, we can flip it around. But I remember Ian, again, I don't want to misrepresent it, Ian, but I remember you were also very clear about like, no, there's no attraction between Gertrude and Hamlet, right? I, I just never seen it. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, the text, especially our edit of the text, but the text yeah. lends itself to the exact opposite. Yeah. He's furious at the beginning of the play, but he's not furious at Claudius. He comes out and says, yeah, Claudius is kind of a, a crap person, but my mother is the monster here. And he's furious at her, not just for marrying Claudius, but for dishonoring his father, that to jump into Claudius's bed that fast after Hamlet Sr. died is a slap in the face to his father, who he considers a saint. You know, it's Hamlet is, if nothing, in love with his father more than he is yeah, he's his mother. He's probably a daddy's boy. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's offended by the fact that his mother has ostensibly turned her back on the man that she used to dote on for this guy who's a pale comparison to him. Not great, not terrible, but a pale comparison He's to just, him. Eh. And then he finds out through the course <laughs> of the play that Claudius is a monster, and then he really goes after Gertrude. But I've never seen it as, there's, I've never seen a romantic connection between the two. Mm -hmm. How long, it sounds like this, the process of like, making these decisions and, you know, adapting the text. How long, I'm just curious, how long did it take from like kind of, you know, the conception of the idea for this I, production yeah, and then like, kind of like to take started, yeah. Wow, yeah. That so fast. Our conversation More. started in the summer and then we had our first official meeting in the winter. Okay. I remember like it being January, cold. Late January, I think. <laughs> Good I, remember, I remember it was good. And I it was cold. I remember those Always. <laughs> That's all that really matters. And then I remember I we started the audition process. Yeah. March. I think I would say from March. Three months. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. So at three months, we would have, it, it, honestly, we, we would have done it much faster, but you know, we weren't working. We weren't working at a at a regional theater company where all three of us were on salary every day. You know, if right. if it were our nine to five, we would have done this in that, that like the whole conceptualization probably in about three weeks. Um, wow. Because you know, you get eight hours a day to do nothing but talk talk shop. I mean, boy, can you get stuff yeah, done? Fine. So this was, <laughs> yeah. it, it took time because you know all three of us. We're working. We're working theater professionals, which means we all have day jobs. Right. So, um, you know, we we, you know, uh, when I was working on cuts, mm -hmm. it wasn't until I came home in the evening that I could sit or on a weekend could sit down with the play and cut it. You know. Wow. Yeah. But again, yeah. So three uh, three months from I'd say roughly three months from the time we initially came up with like okay, it's going to be this Viking Hamlet to yeah. auditions because by the time we had auditions, we had the cut and the the concept all nailed down. Right. And then I guess just this might a little bit more directed toward Malini, but everybody, um, in terms of like organizing, coordinating like a traveling production and doing it, especially in like a public venue, like a park, 
like how can you just like talk to us we were just so interested like how how is that like is that super difficult is it more difficult than like just you know a regular venue and a a theater like how in terms of like you know the logistics of organizing a traveling production like what does that look like here's the basics it's as if you're producing any type of show the thing is your location is different so you're almost doing your publicity, your marketing geared to the location. So you're also thinking about the location, but you're also looking at the big picture because it's New York City parks in this case. Also, we had to consider, and Ian and I and and Kelly and also our, we had a production team, so Patrick and Nicholas, we talked exactly talked about how exactly we were going to have a traveling set because we don't really have a, a truck or a van that we're like, hey, you guys, let's get in a truck. Let's get in the van, load it up. We're moving here to here. It's okay. Some people travel, travel by public transportation. Before Ian and I had a car, we would just drag stuff around or beg, borrow, and steal, right? So it's thinking about how many pieces can we logistically move to each of these spaces? Are each of these spaces conducive to what we're bringing? And most important, hello, Parks Department. I have to fill out all these permits. I have to be clear. I, you know, a lot of times you kind of have to figure out how many people are going to show up because that that number can affect your permit. So, so permit. producing a traveling permit, show yeah. is a lot of fun because you get to move around uh, to different places and have the experience of actually performing outside, but within different neighborhoods. And each neighborhood has its own character. So it's not the same thing. It's, it's not the, the, the same spot. So also just working with Kelly and thinking about, and Ian, since he also did a lot of, did all the art design is how are we going to create, create the space? Uh, the other thing is, you know, we are, you know, we're a small theater company that, that was always part of the vision to be a, a troupe. So our budget isn't, you know, like a Broadway budget or a regional budget, or in some cases, Black Hannah or, or and theater beyond Black Broadway. Hannah you're talking they about, right? Kind of mm-hmm. are okay. Just married to each other. It um, was great. But you know, we like to give something to our actors. It's uh, it's not a salary, but and we're straight up about that. At, that's why we have to be mindful of their time as well. But we do offer a stipend. And that also means, for me, I like to take into consideration how everybody's getting to where they're going. Can we pick you up on the way? Can you all travel together? Can, you know, feed, our big thing is feeding everybody. So at every rehearsal, at every show, there is some type of sustenance in, in, the, in, the, green, in the green room, you know? And, uh, really nice our craft services table, which, you know, I'm like, craft services what do you guys want? Or here I'm bringing stuff. <laughs> you know, and we did much ado about nothing. Um, one weekend, my father and my stepmom cooked food for the whole weekend. So there was like this whole spread 
after one of those shows. Yeah. But Giant that's that's trays. things I think oh, about. Food. I think about Yum. the production. I think about how we're doing the PR. I think about how we're going to be able to move in different spaces. I think about the actors. You know, I also think about my production team. You know, how can we all work together cohesively, but in a, in a manner that is not going to add any type of stress or any, because stuff is also going to happen when you get there. That's the other thing. So yes, you finally get to the park. Yes, it's showtime. Oh wow, it's rain. Okay, what are we doing, you guys? Okay, here we go. And, and thinking in the moment of how am I troubleshooting yeah. this? Or, you know, sometimes you're about to go on stage and that's when the uh, sheriff decides to show up uh, and ask to see your permit. And you have to figure it out right before you go on stage. So. The other thing that's really important and I really want to share with anybody who's considering doing a traveling production of anything out in out and about is to also consider where the closest bathroom is. That is something that I always, always add. I'm always cognizant of that wherever oh. we are performing. I want to make sure that there is a rest area, bathroom, something nearby just because we're human beings, you know? I try to find a way to bring the backstage theatrical feel in an, in an outdoor area. That's great advice. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about that, but like, yeah. I also want to say Malini found us, I'm not kidding, the greatest rehearsal space ever, ever. And it was not traditional rehearsal space at all, but it was, Fantastic. That was through um, a partnership. I, I, I always say to my mentees and to anyone who's coming up in this industry uh, to, you know, maintain relationships, all of them. You never know where they're going to come from. And this was actually somebody I didn't know, but we both were part of a course that the Broadway League does uh, called uh, the Commercial Theater Institute. So she just happened to respond because I said, does anybody have a discounted space, anything? Or are you offering something for alumni willing to have a conversation? And she just happened to have a her own office, but then an, another space that she was using as it was a regular office space. Um, she was a, that part was actually a, was it a nursing, the nursing center? That was a, was a nursing center, right? She, she, she was a, a her specialty right. as a doctor was, was nursing issues. So she had her, her main office where she saw patients, but then there was a, 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 a big open Beautiful nursing heart. room that had these wonderfully comfortable chairs and curtains and, ah. and art and gorgeous art and and we were in after hours and pushed everything to the side and had this really comfortable and and then we would put nice it all back together as if we weren't there that's always that's always been our motto leave the place the way you saw it when you came in did i leave ian and so you learned that in kindergarten and it follow, should follow you through life you know exactly just to, to piggyback on that as well, 
um, just on the whole philosophy of the traveling show. Um, when we started Black Henna, um, I had an idea in my head. Um, and when we had started it to do Park Shakespeare, I had a vision from, and it's, it's a really specific vision from Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Um, there's a, a section in the middle of the Sandman comics where the main characters stumble across Shakespeare in a traveling wagon and the wall of the traveling wagon comes down and he does um, plays for Oberon and Titania and the actual court of the fairies who sit and watch his show. And I always thought that that was such a great idea to have a wagon that rolls up, the wall of the wagon comes down and your set is already built inside it. You got all your costumes in there. And when you're done, you just pack the thing up and off you go, you drive away. And like a food truck. that was my philosophy when Melini and I had first started Black Henna was to have this thing that could sort of roll into a park, put up Shakespeare and give something to the masses because Shakespeare was written for the masses and give to the, the people a story that they could see and remember and then pack it up and roll right away. So when I design sets for us and build props for us, all of the stuff I design and build has an idea in it, has an element to it that it can be folded up and put in my pocket and that I can pack this up and put it away and it just packs into a bag. We did the entire set of Hamlet in one bag attached to one granny cart, one like laundry cart oh with um, a, the, the dead body of Ophelia thrown over my shoulder, wrapped up <laughs> in sheets. And that was the whole set. The whole thing fit in. That's amazing. Yeah, the, weapons, the weapons took up a little more room. Like, well, to be well, fair. But that all still fit in the... Oh, in that the, all in the same yeah, bag? They fit in the granny oh, card, don't we? Right. bag attached right. to the granny okay. card. Right. Okay, you got to patent that, Hamlet in a bag. I mean, I, I mean it's, I would buy it. it's fascinating because it, it, um, it, that, that tradition you're talking about, the wagon, the wagon with the, the fold-down, that's a very specifically European, mm -hmm. like not just England, but European all around. That is, that is the way, the, you know, the mystery plays, that, that's how they did it. They built it on a wagon and it folded down and then they fold it up and take it away. And the closest thing I can think of that we, we that carried over into America would be um, from, from yes. uh, the Mardi Gras parades down in New Orleans, the, the floats, the crews, because they recycle them year from year. Like they don't put the same thing up, but they store them and they and they tweak them out and do different things. And that's that's the closest thing I can think to of it traveling over here. You oh, know what I mean? Like in America, traveling, traveling carnivals as well. Travel, yeah, but traveling carnivals are bit. You know what I mean? They're bigger as opposed to the. The kind of, the kind of, well, actually, I guess. I mean, those back, like, you know, bearded sideshow carnival. Yeah, the, I guess I'm thinking like 19th century, like, uh, like, like out in the wild west kind of thing. You're right. Like, yeah. but, but certainly in the 20th century, we don't really have anything that rolls it. Like maybe a, like say like a circus or a carnival is the next closest thing. And that's a much bigger affair. So mm -hmm. it's just a great image. I just love, I just, and the fact that you quoted Sandman is. <laughs> So with all of that in mind, 
um, you know, you have this really, really cool concept and you want it to be represented and to be clear to the audience, but you're stripping down this production and you're doing minimal costumes, minimal sets, minimal everything, and it all has to be portable. How do you balance those two things, making sure that your your concept is clear and, and visible um, without kind of overwhelming the production? I know for me, um, Ian, I'm for me, I know that in my head, I'm always thinking about the audience. I'm always thinking about what happened at each one of these shows, which always brought me great joy, is the children that are randomly walking by and then all of a sudden lay, lay on the grass. Like, I can cry about it because it's like, oh, because really, as you know, there's no set. Like in Brooklyn, show in Brooklyn, I was going to say, where it was like six of them. Six of them fact, stopped, dropped their bikes and yeah. watched. Or the kids, yeah. wow. the kids who were, oh, was that one you were, what was that hiding Pokemon thing? You remember? And oh, oh, um, Pokemon the, Go. The game on your phone. I, yeah, 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 Pokemon yeah, yeah. Go. Pokemon yeah. Go yeah, and our backstage in Forest Park was apparently one of the places. The gym. It's a Pokemon no gym. No way. True story. And I would say, hi, wow. I, I know you're playing your Pokemon Go, but I really need you not to um, cross the stage. Stand backstage. <laughs> I just thought there's going to be a cross. Okay. And then they'd end up staying. So they do what they have to do. And then they'd end up sta staying and watching. And these are kids that normally wouldn't stop and stay. So that's my, my two cents, Ian. That's an awesome. From, from an art and like uh, a practical art standpoint um i i mean we've been doing this for a while um 30 well 20 something years together and then 30 something years myself um but i have an eye for keeping the purse strings tight when it comes to um working within the budget. Um, so one of the first conversations that Malini and I had was what's our budget? What do we have for money to spend on this? Because if you say sky's the limit, I'll get furs and giant casks <laughs> of mead drawn out to the park. You know, we'll do this full force. But if we've got a couple thousand bucks, okay, good. I know what I'm working with. And I have a very specific vision of uh, of the the artistic design, um, uh, the production design aspect. I had a very clear idea, very clear picture of what I wanted to see everybody look like and what I wanted the set to evoke. Um, and of course, speaking with Kel, that was like we we kept that married so that it wasn't just the the designer rampaging all over the set, but. Um, I had a very clear idea of what we wanted to see physically. And then it just became a game of how, where do I go to get those items and the ones I can't get, how do I build that cheaply so that I can fold it up and put it away? Um, also, Ian, if you remember, cause I am kind of hardcore about the budget, get the yeah. money. I will raise the money. I will get the money. But if you remember, you said to me, the costume is the thing. We need to 
allocate uh, the budget more towards that. Like we knew like how much the actors, were, you know, we were going to give the actors and team and blah, blah. But this was the one thing where I was like, okay, I have to, he really has a vision about how you make winter work in the summer. So <laughs> I, I just want to, I don't know if you remember that or not. Sure. And, and on that point, I mean, if we're not going to have a big set, because our set was essentially um, wherever we were in the park, because the park becomes our backdrop. And then for just some set pieces, um, those rock chairs that we had, we had made uh, out of that drop cloth, that rock drop cloth, and um, a bench that could be moved around, and then some PVC pipe that had flags attached to it to make the, the, the majority of our set. That's not a lot. That like money wise, that's pretty small. So if we're gonna spend money on something to be visual, that people are gonna be looking at no matter where we go, that should be what's on the characters. It should be the, the, the costumes of the, the characters become our set in that point, in that case. So we had to go, and now how do we do garb, historical garb, for not a lot of money. And I figured out a really neat cheat to doing historical garb for not a lot of money. And this was in 2019 when it was, we were still able to do this without feeling guilty about ourselves. Um, all of our costumes are actually, or the majority of our costumes are actually hospital scrubs. Really? But they're in varied colors. So the person's top and bottom weren't matching. Because if you match your hospital scrubs, you look like a nurse. But if you don't match your hospital scrubs, you look like you're wearing weird colored pants and a weird colored shirt. So that's trick one. And then trick two is you oversize everything. So if the person is a large, you get them a double XL. And that way their pants are really baggy and their shirts come down almost to their knees and become tunics. You throw a, a cinch belt on it that loops through itself yeah. and you lace up around the bottoms of the pants with um, strapping and then blouse them out and they become medieval pantaloons instead of um, nurses scrubs. And the whole cost, everybody's costume, each person's costume costs like 40 bucks. <laughs> and then, and then for me, because uh, it's interesting. Uh, for me, the answer to, to that question is, is you you trust the writer, um, because uh, you know whether you like Shakespeare or not, there's just no denying that that the guy wrote stuff that is just indestructible. Like it has lasted 400 years; it's been translated into every language on the planet. It's been done in every country around the world. And and what I take, what I really groove on off of that is that there is that that Uncle Bill was not writing about just what was happening for Elizabethans. There, certainly there was all that kind of commentary. We've already touched on that. But like the heart of the story is not a tough one to wrap your mind around. You're away at school. One of your parents dies. Your other parent marries their sibling, and you come home to deal with it. Like that's, you know, at, at, like just emotionally, that's what's happening. Right, and then as I said, for me, it's a detective story, and so you can set Hamlet in in its original setting in Viking, you know, in 900 AD. You can set Hamlet in 
the Civil War. You can set Hamlet in space. You can set it doesn't. It, it, and I don't mean this in any kind of disrespect, but you can almost put it in any setting if you have actors that are doing their job, which is to make the language as clear as possible. The audience will be able to follow along. Now they may judge you harshly, and when I say you, I mean the director. Um, they may judge you harshly based off of the conceptualization. They may not feel like Hamlet in space is a good idea, but it's not like they're going to go home confused, right? So, uh, so you know, I, I think what's really wonderful about uh, just about these answers is Mulaney has an eye toward the audience, Ian has an eye toward the aesthetic, and, and I have an eye toward, like, the story must be clear. And uh, between the three, you have something that works. That's a show. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's all based on the show, yeah. Them. Wow. Um, you got your holy trinity right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, there yeah, yeah. There um, Ian, you touched on this a little bit, but you mentioned like you knew you always wanted to play Hamlet, but um, you you didn't know you know you weren't ready, and then all of a sudden you felt like you know this was the time you were ready, and so I'm just curious, like what what do you think makes someone makes you like ready to play a character like Hamlet, and then kind of like. From a director perspective, from a producer perspective, what makes someone ready to play that role or, or for yourself to like take on that play that can seem so intimidating and so scary to so many people? Um, well, Hamlet is an, a, a um, he's a beast unto himself. Um, boy can talk. Uh, now, I have never been one to have a problem with memorization. I'm lucky that way lucky that, yeah the um text comes very quickly and easily to me memorization comes very quickly and easily to me um i think it's an emotional there was an emotional readiness that i needed that i just i don't think i was mature enough mentally and emotionally to deal with the character of hamlet i mean everyone he's he is the template for the uh carry this show on your shoulders and and i don't mean that in like a oh nobody else does their job hamlet carries the show no it's everybody else is doing their job and hamlet is doing an entire show inside of the show um so it is a monumental marathon of an undertaking that i just didn't think i was ready for up until we did it and I started to think about it and looked at some of the roles that I had played in the past and said, hey, you know what? I think I can handle this now. I think I am ready to play this part. Um, let's do it. And, you know, but it's a, I mean, it's really a personal thing. I wouldn't even think to tell another actor whether they're ready or not to play a part like Hamlet. It's something that you have to find for yourself, I think. So I'm a little woo-woo and very much about <laughs> what's going on around me and how is this settling? And I just don't think it was a coincidence that our friend had just produced her show um, and this thing that was shared with me was so personal. I don't think it was a coincidence that the idea to want to get back to my roots came out of nowhere and that I just felt like it was the right time. You know, you know, Ian and I have been together for a very long time, which means that we know each other really, really well. So if I 
if I feel something character-wise, and I've also watched this man grow as an actor in a way that has been so mesmerizing, and I couldn't be more proud as as a wife, as a friend, as a, a fellow theater maker, especially, you know, when this all started over, you know, we were, flirt, you know, we were a, a theater fling that wasn't supposed to last this long. Um, truth be told, <laughs> here we are. But there was just something. I, I would not have, like, I wouldn't turn to him and say, hey, dude, what do you think about Lear? You know, or even if we were to go, I'll be. You know, like, uh, what about Virginia Woolf? You ready to play George? You know, there's certain, not yet, like another 20 years, but there's, it just presented itself. Hmm. Ian. Hamlet? Maybe it's time. And then, of course, Kelly has been in our lives for almost a decade, and I know the, the brilliance and the way he thinks and directs and... I respect him very much. So it was just it all lined the stars lined together. Up. Yeah. 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 She did. I just never done Hamlet. I, I'm like, I, I have, I have directed, <laughs> directed Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. The year that, that when we did Hamlet out in Arizona, we, we did, we did the thing where you do Hamlet and Roz and Gale and rep, same setting, same cast, same costume, same world. That's which so cool. I love because for me, I was like, it's an easy sell ticket wise. You come to see Hamlet and then you come back to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you're seeing the stuff that you didn't see in Hamlet because they're showing a whole different, you know, world as it were. But, um, <clears throat> and I even worked on a, a modern adaptation that, uh, uh, I have, I have a producing partner, Matthew Klein wrote an adaptation called Dead for a Ducket, which is in fact a film noir that is Hamlet for all intents and purposes. Um, Dashiell Hamlet is is hired and goes on this quest and yeah it, it's you know it's Hamlet but it's in the 1950s in San Diego and so when Malini came to me and uh, said hey would you be interested in directing Hamlet I was like you bet because I'd sort of been around the periphery of it for several years and I'd never dove in and it, it isn't it isn't unlike what Ian said um, and Malini it, it, it's kind of a combination of both. I don't think I was ready. And then the circumstances were there and I was like, Oh, turns out I'm ready. Like I wouldn't have thought it, but you know, when the call comes, you answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so back to kind of the, the whole park setting as an actor, Ian, what's it like to perform in a public place where you can't control lighting sound you know people coming and going and like i remember the first the first shakespeare production that i started in was um in a summer camp but we did it outside park style um and i remember it was just so different and so such a an exercise to get used to um, so I want to know what that was like for you. Um, I love performing outdoors. And I mean, I love performing in any capacity for any audience. But um, I, I don't, I know people who can't perform outdoors, who hate it. They're like, I hate doing outdoor theater because you never know what's going to go wrong. And like, 
you can't, there's no light cues. You can't tell when things are happening. And I'm like, just roll with it. Go with it. Um, you have the greatest set and lighting designer at your disposal who has already created set and lighting for you. You just have to give faith to that and time the production so that it fits into the window where you need the cues to be. The cues are already written for you. The sun is going to come up this way and go over that way. You know that that's going to happen. So just build your show so that when it's ending, the sun is in the right spot. Um, other than that, don't worry about anything else. Yeah, sometimes a bus is going to go by and it's going to make noise in the middle of your monologue. Or a dog is going to run through the scene. And if you want, stop and pet the dog. Maybe pick the dog up. Have a moment with the dog or a child. That's the best. If a kid runs out, grab that kid, put him right in the scene with you. Do this. I almost picked a kid up in our Hamlet. Really? A kid ran onto the set in Brooklyn. And luckily, their parents like swooped in and grabbed them and pulled them back. But I was this close to just grabbing that kid, picking him up, putting him on my shoulder and running the scene as if the kid was just one of the kids running around the castle. Because sometimes there are kids running around the castle, you know. I think the one that I, I still uh, honestly cringe at was the uh, when we were in um, when we were in Harlem and we were there, there was we're at a we're at a, a T junction at that particular park and. And so the, the east-west street goes on, like, across Manhattan. And the show, <laughs> there was an ambulance coming, and they just were on that road forever <laughs> with the siren going. Like, it just, like, they, like, four miles, they were, they started at the East River and drove to the Hudson. Like, you know, it just, it went on and on and on. And, like, that's the kind of thing that, what are you going to do? Like, you can't stop. Okay, and, here's. Yeah. Here's mine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny at the time. Two instances, like when we were doing Twelfth Night at Eastside Park, State Park, and you know, the you would hear the fear the ferry pull in. And you just gotta what are you gonna do, <laughs> right? You just gotta like keep it moving. Um but when we were in Forest Park. And there's just so much a producer can do to protect the actors and the audience because you're outside. But yeah, there was a quinceanera going on on one side of the park. There was like big boom boxes parties going on the other part, other side of the park. There were drag racing every, you know, so often. And so it got very loud. But you know what the actors did? They knew how to modulate. So they just... And, and that's it. I just want to tie into that, that... I mean, my experience might not be everyone's, but I'm a born and raised New Yorker from New York City, grew up on a an extraordinarily busy uh, main right street. Right there. It's right outside the window, right there. And you learn how to yell over everything. I don't even hear it anymore. Like, people, uh, the, the guy who lives below us moved out because he said the street was too noisy. And I was like, what street is too noisy? I don't know what you're talking about. You hear noise? And evidently there are, there's a lot of noise that goes by out on the street. I just don't notice it. So wow. of course, if you oh, take Ian to like the middle of nowhere for camping, he can't sleep at all because there's no noise. <laughs> <laughs> him out. Oh, I gotta God. have a fan going. 
like a, a yeah, like a noise machine, like just the noises. Company noises. Sounds city on YouTube, you know. I, I mean, the other thing about about outdoor performance, not just live performance, but outdoor performance, is that it, it is it is dangerous in the sense of what what you said, Sarit. There is no control. You can't. You know, there's no there's no telling what's going to happen, and sometimes that's that's dicey or bad or whatever. But sometimes uh, when we we did a production of Midsummer uh, in in Arizona, and uh, I don't remember the scene now, but I, I remember Bottom was in the scene, and I, I actually I think it was they were performing for the court, and there was a we were in the courthouse square, so it's a it's literally a square and a fire truck down one and then had to turn and go down the other and i mean like you know 30 yards away at most like very close and he simply like he was talking and it got so loud he just stopped and he just watched the fire truck and it went by you know and he watched and the rest of the cast kind of did it with him and then as soon as it was passed just picked right back up and it got a huge ovation from the audience. Wow. When you're playing a character like Nick Bottom, you can get away yeah. with it. <laughs> right. but, but also the audience is in the set, like it's just bowing to the inevitability yeah. and yeah. rather than it ruining the moment, it's just... It elevates. Sometimes it elevates, yeah. yeah. Just let the moment There's happen. A, now, if it, up. <laughs> yeah, you know, now, if it, were, if it were a different scene, I will concede that like that works better with some plays or some scenes right. than others. Like if you're in the middle of like Gertrude and Hamlet big confrontation that you have to hold that's less whatever yeah but even so that's part of the you know that's part of the fun you don't know what's going to come at you and it does take a special temperament of actor to roll with that that is a thing that that i remember us addressing with the cast is you know like drilling being loud enough to be heard mm -hmm. and uh, and in fact, to that end, and this was, I believe, Melina, this was your idea, and I, I thought it was a really great idea, or maybe it was Ian's, and if it wasn't, it was definitely mine. Um, we rehearsed a couple of times in Central Park. Absolutely. Um, and that was, that was really not just so that the actors could get used to, you know, when you're in open air, there's no, nothing about sound. You're not in a confined space. But also, there are people walking past. There's no control. We don't have a particular right to be there, so we have to deal with people coming up and asking what's going on or, or people walking by looking. And I thought that's great practice because, it, you know, if you're used to it in rehearsal, then it doesn't throw you as much if it happens. It's really smart, yeah. It, it's also physically, uh, I will admit that it is physically much more demanding, I find, yes. to perform outdoors than it is to perform in a theater, um, simply volume and energy-wise. Well, you only have, it's a limited space you're filling, even if it's a huge space, if it's a 2,000-seat hall, there's still, it's got finite limits. If it's outside, you're, you're literally playing to the heavens. Like and we don't mic. No, that's no. there's no amplified sound. It's, you got to yeah. do this the way Billy Shakes did it. So. <laughs> The way Bill and God intended. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it's about bringing the audience in, right? Like I always mm -hmm. think about that. So, and and there's but there's been a couple of times where we've been, you know, we we've been advised to get to get mics and to do all that. And our feeling is, ah, eh, well, you know, maybe the next show, maybe maybe not, because everybody's mic these days. Nobody, 
really knows how, to, knows project. how to perform anymore. Yeah. Not not to mention the fact that there is a there is a weird thing that happens that when an actor has a mic, like a lapel mic or you know a, a wireless mic, they they seem to lose. They, they they don't want to project because their fear is that they will blow out the speakers. They don't understand that those speaker those mics only work if you're projecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you actually try and talk normally, they're not helping you that much. You know. I mean, again, in a Broadway house, it's a little different. You know. And I'm actually surprised. Just a little off topic, but when I've been to Broadway shows, how frequently people are mic'd and how often I find myself going, that is clearly not necessary. Yep. Like your voices would carry just fine in this room. We saw a I don't know why. That... We saw... No, go ahead, Maureen. I don't know. You might be about to say the oh, same thing. I, I mean, we've seen. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome to <laughs> uh, I was going to just tie on to what Cal was saying with miking that I actually had the privilege of seeing uh, Sir Patrick Stewart play Prospero at the Broadhurst when they moved from the Delacorte to the theater. Uh, they did a limited run indoors. And in that performance, I mean, that was a star-studded cast. There were a lot of other now well-known, but at the time, up-and-coming performers who were in that that production of The Tempest. And I remember seeing um, the... I could actually see on his back where the mic pack was hidden in um, Mario Cantone's costume. He played wow. one of the clowns. And I remember going, and I was sitting in the last row, the very last row of the Broadhurst, which is a big house. Um, I was on the, the ground floor, so not up in the air, but all the way in the, uh, under the balcony in the back. And I could hear everybody fine. It sounded great. The mix was beautiful. And if you've done The Tempest, you know at the end of the show, Prospero gives up his magic and he throws his staff away and he burns his hey, spoiler alert spoiler and, alert yeah oh, sorry i mean it's Thank been a little you. while I mean, so i'm assuming we just did a zoom production of the tempest like a month ago so oh, oh, okay. yeah. years ago we, we, we are both very familiar yeah. with it um yeah. haven't seen it by now yeah, i don't know what you um but probably because he's got a ripped bod and it's in his contract. But every time Patrick Stewart shows up somewhere, he has to take his shirt off. And um, he took, he takes his robe off at the end of the the play and threw it into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And here's Patrick Stewart standing with no shirt on in his, just his little pantaloons. And I realized he's bald. So there's nowhere to hide a hair mic on that man. Wait, that's when you realized he was around. bald? Yeah. That that's moment. Moment. But then he, that's, then he turned wow. around, and I realized he didn't have a mic pack on. And I realized he's not mic'd. And I could hear him as good as I could hear everybody else in the theater. And I went, oh, wow. it's because he's Patrick Stewart. So he's got a voice that goes for days, and he knows how to project. That's why he's doing that. So I've always felt miking is a, a detriment. And if you're, if you're trained correctly... You don't need it. Some of that, though, I think, is just to the way that not not it's not even training. It's the it's the it's the career paths that uh, that frankly commerce is driven after. Mm-hmm. Right. 
you go to grad school, presumably, like let's say you're lucky enough to get into somewhere like Juilliard, you know, NYU, whatever. You graduate, and you know, unless you are either wealthy or you've got scholarships, you got serious bills to pay. And when TV and film come a knocking, yeah. you say yes. Yes, you. And do. so if you if you even if you trained in theater and you graduate at say 22, and you're let's say you're exceptionally fortunate and you get out. You get brought out to L.A. for you, or you move for one reason or another, and you start getting television work in your early twenties, mid twenties, and you start going. You haven't had to project yep. all of a sudden in a decade, and not to mention the fact that your bread and butter is that medium. So you don't want to blow out your pipes because then that hurts the day job. And so now all of a sudden you have these these well known actors who are who are even classically trained. Mm-hmm but have a microphone, whereas Patrick Stewart coming out of England, even their TV stars, even their film stars, are working in theater constantly, and so they never fall out of practice. They can do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's good or bad. It's just I, I think that part of it uh, logistically is we force actors into situations where they lose that training, yep. and then they, they just can't like pull it out. You know, Because like, that kind of vocal control... I mean, you know, it's a perishable skill. Yeah, it's work. You have to maintain it. It's like a muscle. It it is a perishable skill. It's like anything else that's Mm -hmm. physical like that. If you don't do it, it it atrophies and it disappears. And you, well, our um, our uh, 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 Polonius um, had real um, issues with projection. He had never had to before, and so we had to give him a very quick crash course into how to project. And and actually, we had to also give him a quick crash course on how to take care of your throat after a long weekend because, you know, he didn't have the benefit of, of you know, X number of years of training, you know, so. It, he was wonderful. He was also young. He was a, a young actor playing Polonius. Yeah. He was. Yes. Yeah. He had to gray him up. <sighs> God, he was he, yeah, he was great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's right. God, Thank you. So, so, so yeah. good. Like that whole cast. Can I just yeah. say, I would, like, uh, I would, such a good cast. I, I would do anything with them, with any one of them. If they were, yeah. if they all called me tomorrow and said, hey, we're doing the craziest show, it's blah, blah, blah. I would do it. Yeah, man. I would love sure. to see it. I wish I could have seen it live. Yeah. Even the recording, you know, was amazing. So I feel like how much more so like seeing up close. I wish it, like the faces and it just changes everything. Um, but just as we kind of wrap up as like an ending, we've talked a little bit. Um, we actually like, we've touched a lot on just this idea of, you know, making Shakespeare accessible. And my first, um, actual, you know, real Shakespeare production that I saw was a free Shakespeare in the park that, so I, it's like very close to my heart. And I, as you were speaking about like the kids, like I was a kid and I took my sisters and like, you know, um, very close to me. So I think I just wanted to hear, we wanted to hear like what you um, would have to say about the importance of making Shakespeare and you can even generalize to just, you know, high, you know, quality theater, making that accessible to kids, maybe like how we can do that through education or, you know, you know, talk a little bit, maybe even more about, you know, what you would love to see um, to help make it more accessible um, and the importance, like how important you find it. so yeah, whoever wants to kind of chime um, in. I mean, for me, Shakespeare is the foundation upon which 
the majority of our modern entertainment is built. Um, the Lion King is Hamlet. That's not a joke. It is. It's like straight up. Certainly, it's an inspiration. Yeah. No question. So, the Lion King one and a half is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes, and Lion King one and a half is so good. So, but if you one of our favorite movies, if excellent family, stories. we love it. And and make them um, available to children in say Disney format. That's great. And I don't think he would have, Shakespeare wouldn't have a problem with that, I don't think. Um, my father is, or was a, um, a theater professor, and he is fond of saying that Shakespeare was written for the people, not for the rich. And a, a great example of that is when he was in undergrad, he wanted to go to, uh, he went to his local bar because um, he couldn't make it all the way home uh, and get to see this version of Shakespeare that was being played. Hamlet was on uh, PBS and... It was the Burton, right? uh, What's that? I think it was the Burton. It was the Burton. Um, yeah. But Hamlet was going to be on PBS live, live simulcast, and my dad really wanted to see it. So he went to this local watering hole that he knew the bartender, and the bartender would change the channel for him. But this wasn't like a an arts bar or a theater bar. This was a like working class Brooklyn dock workers bar that he went to. This was a, a somewhat rough and tumble place. So he went in and he asked the bartender and the guy said, oh, what's on the game? And he said, no, no, it's Hamlet. Just put it on channel 13. So the guy changed the channel and they started watching it. He and his buddy were sitting there watching it. And a couple of people came over and they said, what is this? What is this garbage you watching? He said, no, no, it's not garbage. It's Hamlet. Um, that guy, his father died. He's the prince and his father died and his mother married his father's brother. And the guys in the bar were incredulous. They were like, wait, what? She married his brother? Oh, I got to see what goes on. And they all pulled up chairs and these like hardcore dock workers started sitting around watching Hamlet. And by the time the thing ended at the fight, people were on their chairs screaming at the TV. They were all cheering for Hamlet. And that right there is the whole point of why this is made for the public, for the people. These are not guys who were studying Hamlet in school. Hamlet is not made to be read. Shakespeare isn't made to be read. And um, what's her name? Um, she's in Red, the movie Red. Uh, and she just oh, Helen, Helen, Mirren. Mirren. Helen Mirren just got in a lot of trouble recently because she said we shouldn't be reading Hamlet to children. We shouldn't make children read Hamlet in school. All of their exposure to Hamlet should be through live theater. Right. We're right. furious at her. They were like, well, you want to take Shakespeare out of schools? It's not what she said. It's not she what she said. Shakespeare is made to be seen and heard, I not agree. made to be read. And the way to kill Shakespeare is make kids read it because they're not going to understand it. But to make them love it, just show it to them. Let them see it. I think That's my to, to that To that point, Ian, I think that, I mean, I agree with you 100%. Uh, Shakespeare was written for the general public. He was writing for an audience who were not literate. I mean, even the aristocracy, that did not mean you were literate. Not in the Elizabethan age, but certainly... None of the, the working class, none of the peasantry were literate. Um, and, 
And so it, it is written for everyone. Uh, and I think part of the, the challenge that, that we face culturally in our country is that we have made theater an elitist art. Um, and it didn't, it, it wasn't always like that. Even in the early 20th century, that was not the case. Hell, as late as the mid 20th century in the 40s, you know, Arthur Miller is premiering plays on Broadway. And the idea that, and I'm not even trying to be funny here, the idea that somebody that was a relatively unknown playwright at the time could get, have a work that was strong enough to go to Broadway and open with, you know, actors that weren't famous, world famous, and it was a hit is unfathomable in our day and age now. Like, you, you're not going to get an unknown playwright on Broadway, and you sure as hell aren't going to get one that has got actors that you've never heard of. That's just never nope. going to happen now. Because, because, and I'm not saying there's an evil conspiracy or anything, but just along the way, the commerce of theater became more important than whether or not it was an art form or a medium for the masses. And we've seen this happen. It happened with opera. Opera was for the masses. It is not anymore. We've seen it with ballet. Ballet was absolutely for the masses, and it is certainly not anymore. Classical music, you know, like yeah. back in the day when a composer was composing classical music, it was it was really for anybody that would come. It was a little more elite than the other two, but not a ton. And all of these things are now more of a rarefied air. But it doesn't have to be that way. It is because we have chosen culturally we have made our decisions about what is important. And and that becomes about like what we're exposing people to at a young age in the school system. It becomes about how we price things out. Um, and, and and you know if you want to if you wanted to go see uh, King Lear on Broadway with Glenda Jackson. It was pricey. You gotta be prepared to shell out two hundred dollars yeah. at a minute. And I'm like, who in the hell has that kind of money to go see? I'm sorry, I, I love Shakespeare, but who's got two hundred dollars to go see Shakespeare? I don't not care. Who, me. I mean, yeah, not listen, me. I didn't go. Listen, yeah. If he and Burbage have come up out of the grave and are performing on stage, that is worth two hundred dollars. <laughs> I'll pay that, right? But otherwise, you know, it's ridiculous. And so this is a thing that, like, the reason I love what Black Tina does, but the reason I think that it's important all over. Is, is because it is, it is taking it back and showing anybody that cares to, to look, to listen. Up, this is yours. This was always yours. It was taken from you. No, not, not like somebody came in the middle of the night and took it, but the end result is the same. No one thinks of it as theirs. And I don't just mean Shakespeare, although Lord knows I think Shakespeare is, you know, fantastic. I'm talking about theater. Just any new theater old theater, from, theater from all over the world, different traditions, it is meant to be enjoyed by just folks. It should be done everywhere all the time. We should be celebrating it. And instead, we've made it into a rarefied art. So I think that, to build on what Ian's saying, I also think that culturally we have just sort of taken the idea of theater and, and made it this other thing. And, and part of that is because television and movies are so ubiquitous now. Like, why go to the theater? You can stream it in your yeah. In pandemia, there is no other choice. So for me, you know, theater has been my platform. You know, my my mission and vision for myself is to be able to be the voice for anybody who does not have a voice yet. They may soon. And I think if you are one trying to explore what this world of theater is, Shakespeare is, and any of the other classics actually, 
can work, but Shakespeare even more so out of all of them, where it doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, you know, what your upbringing is, what your experiences are. It, it doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, bring all of that because you can pull apart a play and use what we did, which was just the core detective story, right? Or you can make it as a five act play and you can change the setting. It's, it's an opportunity to be diverse and, and inclusive. It's an opportunity to gender, you know, gender swapping or doing an all, you know, however you want to do it, all female, all male, all, you know, trans, you know, anything, you know, non-conforming, however you want to choose it. How, no one, no one cares, you know, and, uh, well, for me, and I know for my people in my life, it's about the story. It is not about who's doing the role. So right. I think that's, the importance of theater. I think that's the importance of Shakespeare because it allows many different interpretations depending on the play. And uh, we've, you know, we did Twelfth Night and Malvolio was played by a woman. And, you know, Horatio was played by a woman. You know, we didn't, I what? last year did a, a a version of the cherry orchard and you know there was someone who didn't identify which is like that's the whole point we're just telling the story it's not necessarily about who you are but it's about what is what is it you're bringing what essence are you bringing to this so for me i think that's where the accessibility to any young person is apparent you know, that maybe in one weekend, because you could do this in the summer, in one weekend you could see three different versions of Romeo and Juliet. Each one of those versions are going to have its own story and each cast is going to look different. You know, and if you notice, like, I just want to close with this because I know we've really, like, gotten in, into it. But uh, the thing I came up with the group is the fact that our cast, if you're in Denmark, is white. So I, as a, a woman of color, um, strong woman, a New Yorker, married to Ian, married <laughs> to Hamlet. That'll be another episode. Being married to Hamlet. Being married to Hamlet. Um, a six-part essay. Here we oh go. Gosh. What a feel you missed out on. <laughs> yeah, or what if, maybe... What if, the, the bullet Ophelia yeah. died, married to Hamlet. Oh, my gosh. That's it. Oh, my God. Let me tell you, that was a, a good laugh after we closed. It was like, oh, my God, let me tell you. So, uh, <laughs> but it's it's all of that. It's the essence of that. It's the essence of how how do I see myself in this, which is why we had, um, we, we had people of color, et cetera, involved in this and you know i got to be the producer it wasn't a white man my white yes. man finally yeah. finally my white man yeah. that i love hey man I, you, you're the <laughs> boss Melanie. you point i go oh my goodness
Wow, thank you all so, so much. This has thank been you. such an interesting and enlightening conversation. Um, could you just quickly start with Ian, go to Malini, and then to Kelly? Just tell us where on the World Wide Web our viewers can find more about you and the projects that you're Very working nice. on. Um, I'm on, uh, I have a website. It's www.ianmcdonald-actor.com. So ianmcdonald-actor.com. Um, and uh, I need to update it. So thank you. That remi <laughs> yeah. Yeah. reminder. Hyphen, director, hyphen designer, yeah. hyphen writer. Just uh, yeah. I would have done that. The only reason I had to put that on there is because there's another, there are several other Ian McDonald's one of which mm -hmm. is a British sci-fi author and the other is uh, from King Crimson. And if you Google my name, those <laughs> people, I'm like, that's that's not a, that's I'd love bad. to be in King Crimson, but that's not me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. make my own website. Wow. Uh, but yeah, I'm there. And I'm also on the uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter. Uh, if you just search for Ian McDonald or I McDonald, IMCD42, sometimes it'll pop up. We'll work on your branding, Thank my love. We'll work on your branding. I know. <laughs> so uh, my website, in addition to blackhannaproductions.com, which also needs to be updated, everybody's website is always in in motion, under construction. Um, but mine is uh, malinism.com, as well as theaterbeyondbroadway.com. That's theater with an R-E. And I, I'm also, you can find me on social media under Malini Singh McDonald. What I'm currently working on is my master's in public administration <laughs> at Baruch College. I decided wow. to, to yes. pivot, but because I really wanted to learn more about policy and how to bring all of this knowledge in, because I also work in the public sector to, to theater and and kind of sort through the crazy mess we're in now. And I am also currently the director of media and communications for the Gilder Kwanier International Theater Award Program as part of the League of Professional Theater Women. And that's going up in February, where we are honoring Hanan Ali. Uh, Haj, who is from Lebanon, and we're looking at about 28 powerful women artists around the world who are continuing to create art under the circumstances that are normal in their countries, but as well as what's been going on this year. So I'm in it to win it right now with my with the PR and the marketing, but other than that, I'm pretty much on a little bit of a theater hiatus with theater that's on a hiatus. So, yeah. aren't we all? Yeah. As much as we don't want yeah. to be. Um, I like uh, like the other two. I, I actually I don't have a website. My website has been under construction for a decade and a half. <laughs> um, I, I'm just terrible about it. I I, I yeah. But I, uh, I am the showrunner for a podcast, so y'all can, can relate. Um, it's a storytelling podcast that we actually launched here in Pandemia because, I mean, what in the hell else do we do? <laughs> um, so uh, we launched under the name Don't Sue Us, Please, 
which uh, which was because at the time when we started, we were actually doing um, uh, riffs off of the DC universe. So we did like a four part episodes of Wonder Woman, and then we did other characters. But in 2021, after the horror show of this past year, we are pivoting out of that universe, and we are, we are starting our own. It's called April is the Coolest Month. Um, My birthday is in April, is, so. Hey, so was, so, was Bill, so was Bill's. Also his death. So um, yeah. this, I, I will tell you very quickly, it's an anthology series. It, it actually launches in, it's, we're launching April 1st, actually, of, of 2021. We will launch the new universe. and. Um, we, we knew we wanted to move into a different universe, and so um, we were in a meeting talking, and uh, the guy that wrote Dead for a Duck at Matthew Klein was, was noodling on his computer and literally said, hey, he found this clickbait thing about how April is the worst month out of all the months. No offense. It's okay. You know, Don't it's worry. Not, it's not you. Uh, but but uh, it, it's... Um, more bad things worldwide happen in the month of April. Oh, than that's any true. Other I've month of I've April. heard that. Yes. And so he he mentioned that, and I I am a I'm a fan of P.S. Eliot, and so I just murmured, you know, well, April is the coolest month. And then all of a sudden, just an hour later, this is the podcast. So it is literally a podcast, an anthology series about different events that happened in April. So it's historical fiction esque. So we have. Um, we have uh, an episode about the assassination of Lincoln. We have an episode about the great earthquake of 1906 in uh, San Francisco. We have an episode, we'll ha we don't have one yet, but we have an episode actually about the death of Hitler, or excuse me, the birth of Hitler. Um, we have um, an episode, we will have an episode about... Oh, Kurt Cobain. I mean, Kurt Cobain con uh, committed suicide in April. Suicide? Notre Dame was set on That's fire in April. I mean, I mean, like, it, yes, it starts, I'm sorry, I'm, I don't, I know it's your it's birthday okay. month, I don't want you to wow. do that, but like, it's, I mean, it just keeps so, going, yeah, wow. Oh, it, it's, it's, Waco was in April, um, it just goes on and on and on, and so, these are all stories that use, like, one event as the centerpiece of each story, and it spins out, so, you can find us, like, you can go into any, anywhere that lists podcasts and look up, April is the coolest month, and there we are, so, um, and and certainly, if you've enjoyed, if you're enjoying this, uh, we when we don't have an episode, we have behind the scenes content. So I talk just an awful lot, <laughs> um, not by choice, but by demand. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. This thank was amazing. You. Thank you. This podcast was created by Sarit Pearl and Ellie Shava Hirsch. It is hosted by Sarit Pearl and Ellie Shava Hirsch. It is edited by Sarit Pearl. It is produced by Ellie Shava Hirsch. The cover art is by Sarit Pearl and the music is by Julius H. on Pixabay. Thanks so much for listening.